Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. First off, I've got a little sign-up sheet here. It's got a place for name, email address, and phone. Please print so I can read it. Now, I'm going to be quoting from some documents this morning a little bit. We don't have a lot of time, but I'm going to touch on some of it. And if you'd like to get copies of any of this stuff that I'm quoting from, I'd be happy to email it to you. I also send out daily quotes. It's not all big book stuff. There's like some other stuff. There's Woody Allen and uh, Tom Waits, you know, some of the great spiritual leaders of our time. And, uh, Eckhart Tolle and some big book stuff, some stuff from the grapevine. Every day I send out three little quotes, and it's a little bit different. And if you'd like to participate in that, I also send out some AA history stuff. And uh, I've got some cards here with my email address. If you'd like to email me or sign up on the list, please, please feel free to do. If anybody's listening to this, my email address is billc at craigtools.com. And uh, I'd love to communicate with you. I do this around the country, and I've got some weirdos that email me every day, man, from all over the world. It's really cool. I love it. And uh, um, sponsorship. Last night we talked a little bit about how does God work in our lives? What is God's will? Um, Why are we here? What's going on? Last night I talked a little bit about, is it just about going to meetings and getting a better job and raising the kids and stuff? You know, is that it? Because that by itself is not bad. But isn't there more? Isn't there more happening here? I think so. One of the problems that you and I confront when we get sober with this emotional immaturity is the selfishness and self-centeredness. The book is riddled with it. It says it is the root of our problems, this selfishness and self-centeredness. I I think I was probably three years sober when it hit me, truly, how self-centered I was. Um, I can't stand outside myself and have a separate experience and then judge me and say, Jesus, he's self-centered, you know. It doesn't work like that. I think everybody else is. I mean, the thief thinks everyone else is a thief. That's his reality. The selfish and self-centered person believes that everybody else pretty much feels as he does. Uh, How could I know any different? That's been my experience all my life. So how do we get out of that? How do we break loose from it? I think that there's a couple of, of key things. One is the understanding that this is not about me. It's not about me. Alcoholics Anonymous is not a support group. It's not a self-help program at all. It is the absolute antithesis of that, the polar opposite of it. It is not therapy. It is not being introspective. You know, it's about me getting out of myself in a spiritual way, getting out, stepping outside of who I think I am, having a series of new experiences that reconnects me to the human race. 
I step back in the circle. Um, uh, Chuck Chamberlain used to draw the, the big circle on the board, and he'd put a bunch of dots in the middle of the circle, and then he'd put one dot outside the circle. And there we are. We are not participating in what's going on. And we don't even know it. We think that we're in the world that we're in life, but we're not. We're sound asleep in sobriety. So what is the mechanism that's used? Well, AA came from an organization called the Oxford Group. The Oxford Group called themselves first century Christians. Well, what a first century Christian is, by definition of the Oxford Group, is this was before there was a church, before there was a, any dogma at all, before there was a belief mechanism of any kind. And they were out in the streets with the hookers and the thieves. And if you look at Jesus' life, he didn't spend a lot of time in church. Matter of fact, when he was in there, he tore the place up. You know? He was a little pissy. You know? He was a political activist of the worst kind. Some would say a terrorist, you know? And, uh, but he was out in the street. And when they were throwing rocks at Mary Magdalene, he, who are you? Who are you to be throwing rocks at anybody? I mean, this is the kind of stuff he was doing. You also remember, he is the one who brought the wine to the wedding party. You know? He was a party kind of guy. You know? <laughs> so the Oxford groupers put themselves in this kind of category. Street preachers out there doing work. They, did, they were not a church in and of themselves. They had no dogma. They had no way of raising money. They did not solicit money from anybody. They figured God would provide. And it, before World War II, they were huge. They're still around today. They are called Initiatives of Change. I've been to their center in uh, Coe, Switzerland. I've had some meetings of Oxford Group people in my home. Uh, my sponsor is very involved with them. So they're still very alive and well today, for your information. You'll notice on my card... It says, Bill Soul Surgeon. A little arrogant. Um, just a little. And uh, the Oxford Group people called themselves Soul Surgeons. And what they did, if you came into their organization and say you had a specific problem, like drinking or gambling or some aberrated sexual activity, they would connect you with a person that had the same problem and who had overcome it. And you would sit alone with them. And you would pray and meditate with them and write down what came to and share it back and forth. Morning meditation with your sponsor was a big deal in the Oxford group. Um, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob grew up in this organization. Prior to even being sober, Bob was very involved. His wife, Ann Smith, was really Henrietta Sieberling, who put the two of them together, Bill and Bob, was Ann Smith's sponsor. Okay? So when Bill and Bob got together and they were putting Alcoholics Anonymous together, this ethic came along with it. The house meetings, sharing, um, God as you understand God is an Oxford group concept. One day at a time. You know, all the stuff. When you really look at it, like any speaker in AA, we all steal from other people. And Bill and Bob did not come up with anything original. 
even the traditions are rooted kind of in the Oxford group. You know, the whole idea of corporate poverty, of having no money, no possessions, you know, not being part of the material world was all Oxford group stuff. Um, so people will say sponsorship is not mentioned in the big book. That is not true. The big book is much larger than 164 pages. Read the entire thing, and it talks about sponsorship a lot. Um, Bill and Bob talked about sponsorship a lot. That's what they did. And they talked about sponsoring people into the meetings. And what they did is they would go to the hospitals, and they'd go from bed to bed of the loser, the loser, cat, the loser ward, and they would go in there, and they'd say, are you ready to get sober? Do you want to get sober for good and all? Are you ready? And somebody would say yes, and they'd go, okay, you can come. And they would sponsor, they would bring him to a meeting or bring him to the group. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to read from you a little bit, and I, I can't go over the whole thing, but it's really interesting. This is a document called the, uh, the Akron Manual. And... Uh, in 1941, they figured this was written. Bob put this together. Now, this was after the big book. The big book says that these are suggestions. And the big book says, we, not you. There's no finger pointing. This all came in the editing process. If you've ever read some of the pre-drafts or the, the lithographs of it, it was about what you're going to do and throw the book away if you don't like it. You know, it's like, and they went, whoa, wait a minute. we got to sell this thing. <laughs> you know, somebody looked at that and go, come on, you know. Thank God they had Hank Parkhurst, who was like an evil used car salesman. I mean, these are the guys that came up with the phony stock certificates, you know. I mean, these are the guys that said the first 100 of us. And there were only 77. They lied to us up front, you know. And, uh, but they had found something, hadn't they? They had found something that seemed to be working. Their lives got saved. These guys had the fire. And they used the tools that they had. They wanted to sell it. Remember the story. Bill wanted to build hospitals across the country, which is essentially what we have now. We have hospitals across the country. Everybody has access to this thing. It came to pass. Maybe not in the way he thought, but it did come to pass. He worked very diligently with the Alcoholism Council and Marty Mann. Uh, they pushed very hard to have the American Medical Association declare alcoholism as a disease, even though there's a lot of debate about that. But behind the scenes, they pushed for this. And the reason they wanted it is so that they would quit jailing alcoholics and put them in recovery. That's what they wanted. Around the time when the big book came out, in 1941, Bob came up with this Akron manual. And the manual is how to. How do you do this thing? When somebody comes in and they're newly sober and it's time to go out and get the next guy, they needed to give them something to show them how to do this. Well, they had the big book, but that was how they were selling AA. This is what they were really doing. And just listen to some. I'm not condoning this. I just think it's really cool. <laughs> uh, explain that we are not in the business of sobering up drunks merely to have them go on another bender. Explain that our aim is total and permanent sobriety. What happened to one day at a time? 
Nowhere in this document does it ever say or allude to one day at a time. <laughs> Definition of an alcoholic anonymous. An alcoholic anonymous is an alcoholic who through application of and adherence to rules laid down by the organization has completely forsworn the use of any and all alcoholic beverages. The moment he wittingly drinks so much as a drop of beer, wine, spirits, or any other alcoholic drink, he automatically loses all status as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> You're out. AA is not interested in sobering up drunks who are not sincere in their desire to remain completely sober for all time. A little stringent. <laughs> to the newcomer. It, listen up. <laughs> it is your life. It is your choice. If you are not completely convinced to your own satisfaction that you are an alcoholic, that your life has become unmanageable. If you are not ready to part with alcohol forever, it would be better for all concerned if you discontinue reading this and give up the idea of becoming a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> what happened to just the desire? <laughs> a word to the sponsor. Us. You must fulfill all pledges you make to him, either tangible or intangible. If you cannot fulfill a promise, do not make it. You have in your hands the most valuable property in the world, the future of a fellow man. Treat his life as carefully as you would your own. You are literally responsible for his life. Dude. Alcoholics Anonymous is 100% effective for those who faithfully follow the rules. It is those who try to cut corners who find themselves back in their old drunken state. Rules. Before long you will have a new thrill, the thrill of helping someone else. There is no greater satisfaction in the world than watching the progress of a new alcoholic anonymous. No whiskey in the world can give you this thrill. Above all, remember this, keep the rules in mind. As long as you follow them, you are on firm ground, but the least deviation and you are vulnerable. As a new member, remember that you are one of the most important cogs in the machinery of AA. Without the work of the new member, AA could not have grown as it has. You will bring into this work a fresh enthusiasm, a zeal of the crusader. You will want everyone to share with you the blessings of this new life. You will be tireless in your efforts to help others, and it is a splendid enthusiasm. Cherish it as long as you can. For you are ready to sponsor some other poor alcoholic who is desperately in need of help, both human and divine. So God bless you and keep you. This, one is real, this next one is just killer. You aren't very important in this world. <laughs> if you lose your job, someone better will replace you. <laughs> if you die, your wife will mourn briefly <laughs> and then remarry. Your children will grow up and you will be but a memory. 
Jeez. In the last analysis, you are the only one who benefits by your sobriety. Seek to cultivate humility. Remember that cockiness leads to a speedy fall. It's very good advice. And here's where I got the emotional immaturity. Medical men will tell you that alcoholics are all alike in at least one respect. They are emotionally immature. In other words, alcoholics have not to learn to think like adults. It cannot be resolved through intelligent, informed sponsorship. Bill Wilson says, right after the ninth step, our next function is to increase in understanding and effectiveness. In the ninth concept, he says a very powerful thing. He said, let's not get too carried away with the idea of principles before personalities, lest we become mindless, faceless automatons. Every sponsor is a leader as well as a teacher. So I think what Wilson is saying is, step up. Step up. You know, you want to get humble? Hang your ego out there. Give God a big target. It'll happen. You know, it'll happen. You know, but if you pretend to be humble, nothing will happen. You know, nothing will arrive. My dad used to say he was sober a long time and he'd say, the problem with humility is as soon as you think you got some, you don't. You know, it's like. <clears throat> So this sponsorship thing, what do we do? You know, what's it look like? Um, and why, why, what is it, what are the benefits to us? Because we always want to know that. What am I going to get out of it? I'll pretend to be selfless. That works for a while. You know, I mean, fake it till you make it is a pretty good concept. Because if I wait till I feel correctly, nothing will happen. You know? I mean, truly the most spiritual thing said in AA is get in the car. Get in the car. We're going somewhere. Recovery by its very nature is uncomfortable. I have to get used to that. I have to somehow paint myself into a corner to where I will go places I do not want to go. Um, I was probably three years sober. And I'm sponsoring this guy named Al. And uh, my sponsor, once again, if you remember last night, he says, you don't ever say no, ever. You let the manager run the show. You just go wherever you're asked. You never say no. You always go, stop making those decisions. This instrument that you're using up here is not good for these kinds of decisions. It's a great calculator. But as far as making really good um, value judgments, it's not really good. Because if I look in there and I say, well, this is going to make me uncomfortable. I don't know the rules. I don't know how to talk. I don't, I've never done it before. Never done it before is a good reason to never do it in my mind. I've never done it. We, we, we've never done it like that. That's why we don't do it like that, because we never have. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, I mean, I've been in business for a long time. You know, the first time somebody says in my office, service time says, well, we never done it that way. They have to put a buck in the bowl, you know, because probably the fact that we've never done it like that, we've probably missed something somewhere. So this guy asked me to sponsor him, and, uh, and, I'm, and I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And my motivation for sponsoring people originally 
<clears throat> is I wanted to look good. Now you got to picture this. This is very important. I'm clawing my way up the AA corporate ladder. I am trying to make my name for myself in an anonymous organization. I have no rational explanation for that. It sometimes still rears its ugly head. But now I can spot it and go, oh, there you are again, you know. It's like, you know, what? To be the worst, the best loser in the group, I guess, is the idea. Um, so my motivation was impure, as it always has been impure. They'll tell you around here, they'll say, go do something kind for somebody and don't tell anybody. I don't think I've ever pulled that off. <laughs> you know, I've kept quiet for a while, but it leaks out. You know, I mean, there's just some shit that comes slow to me. And, uh, so I'm, my motivations are always suspect. So I'm sponsoring guys, and I'm trying to make a name for myself. That's where I am at three years sober, three or four. And this guy's in my kitchen, and his mother is dying. And I've, I've watched him take care of her. They did not have health insurance, and he was living in the house with her, and this was not a very nice woman. His mother was not a saint. And uh, he was popping her hip back in place and changing her diapers and... And I was, I was impressed by this. I mean, I, I, I stood there watching him do this, thinking I could never do that. And, uh, but here he was, and he was not doing it gracefully. He was upset, he was angry, he was frightened, all those things, you know. He would yell at her and come and tell me, I yelled at my mother in the wheelchair again. It's <laughs> like, God. I go, well, go back and say you're sorry. And he goes, oh. <laughs> you know, and so he would, you know, I mean, it was like that, you know, the blind leading the deaf and stupid. And uh, she was in the hospital and he had left my phone number with the hospital telling them that that's where he would be. So sure enough, they called and they said, uh, you better get back here. It looks like she's going to pass. And he stood up to leave. And, uh, but he wasn't leaving. He just stood there. And I knew what he wanted. And I did not want to go. I had never seen anything like that. I didn't know this guy that well. I didn't hardly know her at all. And I did not want to go. And I thought, well, we don't do that. All we do is just read the book with people, right? We just work the steps with them. You know? There's limitations. There's parameters. There's boundaries. There's boundaries is a good one. You know, I have, I have, I've set my boundaries. You know, I'm just a people pleaser. You know, I'm a workaholic. I've never met an alcoholic that's a workaholic. He just hides out at work. There's a difference. <laughs> I think we're basically lazy by nature. You know? That's why we found some of us get quite wealthy by finding shortcuts to shit. You know? And, and uh, so I said to him, do you want me to go? And he said, would you please? Now, stop and, stop and think about this. Look at this picture for a second. This guy has a family. He had a brother and a sister, aunts and uncles and stuff. And... Uh, and yet, he wanted me to go with him. I mean, if I hardly knew him, he hardly knew me in the scheme of things. We knew knowing each other maybe for a year, maybe two. They have faith in us. They trust us 
for some odd reason. There's something going on here that I don't understand. There's something that's beyond my capability to grasp. Something of a spiritual nature that I just don't get. I don't hear that wavelength. I don't see that color spectrum. But it's nonetheless, it's going on. It's happening. And my job, I believe, is to sit back and watch the show. And it becomes very apparent when it's my turn to get up and get on stage and be part of whatever it is that's going on. It isn't unclear at all. It's real clear when it's my turn. Like when they say, would you please come? You just say yes. It's obvious. No matter what it is you feel inside. I should deny myself? Absolutely. Because you will limit the experience. I will always limit the experience. As soon as I get uncomfortable, I'm out of the pool. You know? So I went with him, and we walked in this room. And it was, she was in ICU, and she's all hooked up, and it was awful. And there was a chair over on the side by, near the bed up against the wall. And I, I went over, and I walked over there, and I sat down in the chair, you know, to kind of catch my breath. I was shook up. You know, I'd, I'd never done this before. And Al, my friend, is pacing the room, and he's, this is his mother. She's dying. You know, she's clearly dying. And I sat there, and I closed my eyes, and a feeling came over me. And the feeling that came over me was, everything's okay. There's nothing wrong. This is not incorrect. Everything's as it should be. It's, it's all right. Just breathe. And I sat there and I closed my eyes and I just relaxed. All the muscles in my body relaxed. I just relaxed. And I, and I looked at her and it wasn't horrifying anymore. Everything was okay. And Al's this great big guy. He's as big as me, but he's a carpenter. He's got great big hands, big, strong guy, surfer guy. And, and I, said, I said, come on over here, Al. Sit down. There was a chair next to me and we sat down and I held his hand. And I looked at him and I said, Al, everything's okay. There's nothing wrong here, man. It's all right. And we were holding hands and I said, let's pray. And we said a prayer. And while we were saying this prayer, I could feel his hand relax in my hand. That's intimacy. That's it. Right there. That's it. And I miss it. All the time. Because it's quiet. It's subtle. Emotions are quiet and subtle. And I'm loud. And I'm looking for a head rush. I want all the cells of my body to just explode right through the top of my head. And God present himself as Krishna right before me, you know. <laughs> then I'll know. You know. And it just hasn't been like that. It's been those quiet little moments, sitting in the hospital or somewhere, where somebody bears their soul, and I'm there. And I just happen to be there. Most of the time, there's nothing to say. It's just being there is enough to feel the presence of God. You take me to those places. I do not go there by myself. I can't find them. I don't know where they are. You take me there. You invite me into your lives. 
I'll sit in a room with a guy and I'll do 20 minutes on how he should live his life. 20 really good minutes. Should have recorded that one. Minutes. 20 really excellent advice. Excellent spiritual advice. I have a good command of the English language. My language skills are really pretty good. And, uh, and I can paint a beautiful picture for you. Then the guy leaves the room and I think to myself, that's good shit. I should do some of that. <laughs> I am confronted with my own hypocrisy. I'm a liar. By nature, I'm a liar. Now, the words I said are good words. The truths are universal truths. The picture I paint is that I am doing that stuff that I'm telling you. That is a lie. I am disingenuous. I will lead you to believe things. I will lie by omission, by not saying something when, it's, when I should say something. I'll take credit for things that I didn't do and just allow you to believe that I did it. Things like that. I never see that without you. I need you to show me that. When I look at you and I say, just trust me. Tell me what you need to tell me. Trust me. Am I trustworthy? Can they trust me? Have I violated the confidence of somebody I sponsored? Yes. I've said stuff that I should not have said, that somebody told me in confidence. I've been fired as a sponsor for doing that. That hurts. That hurt. Do I do it anymore? No. Because I learned that hurts. And, I, and I'll do it under the guise of, well, I'm just trying to help. You know? And maybe that is my motivation. But should I do it? No, I'm not trustworthy if I do stuff like that. And I've had to confront those things. If you open your heart to this work, I'll promise you a couple of things. If you have any prejudice at all, it will walk across the room and ask you for help. <laughs> Invariably. Any prejudice at all, it'll come right up to you. It's how he works. You know, send him to me, Father. He's going to like this one. And I've had to confront that. My friend Patrick Keelahan, his mother called him the devil of all liars. He was a little Irish, and he was an awful man. He used to tell his wife that he was going to go on retreat with us. And we would all go off on retreat, and he would go down to the Viscount Hotel and get an eight ball and a couple of hookers and have a great retreat weekend. And then come back and tell his wife that the retreat was wonderful. God, I had a great time. I learned a lot, you know. He took several birthday cakes and was in no way was he sober. You know, he was just was a liar and a sneak. Awful guy. Finally, he got sober. Finally, he came clean. It got bad enough. He came clean. He got sober. And uh, Patrick and I were good friends. He was sponsored by my sponsor. And the night he really got serious about it, I happened to be with him at this meeting. And we stood out in the parking lot, and he broke down in tears. 
And I just held him in this darkened parking lot outside of a church and told him it was going to be okay, man. You're going to be all right. You're with us now. It'll be okay. And I watched him get sober. And we had a great time together. He was just a... This was a guy. My sponsor had a coffee shop. And the front of the coffee shop is a big plate glass window. And I'm standing outside smoking a cigar, which, as we all know, isn't really smoking. And... Uh, <laughs> I don't want to talk about it right now. And, uh, and my wife is on the inside sitting at this table. And she's quite a pretty woman, I think. And other people would agree with that. And Patrick comes up behind her and he waits till I'm watching. And he leans her head back and just gives her a big one. And she just took it. <laughs> and then he puts her back up and looked at me and grinned. That was my friend Patrick. And, uh, the bastard. And, uh, and, uh, my wife loved him. I loved him. You just couldn't help but love Patrick. And he got lung cancer. And it took him about three years to die. And, uh, we would bring him on retreat because he would actually go. And he had an open wound in his back that they would use to drain the fluid from his lungs. And the doctor had to show us how to pack the wound so that we could take him with us. And I'd never done anything like that before. You know, it frightened me. But I loved him. I loved him. I don't know that I'd ever felt that before, that kind of love. The strength of it is frightening. Around here, you have to love fearlessly and recklessly because sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it just hurts. And uh, he said one of the most powerful things I've ever heard in an AA meeting. My sponsor and another guy would pick him up and bring him to the Monday night to the home group. And his head was all swollen. He looked grotesque near the end. And, and he would come, as long as he could, he would come to the meeting. And, and uh, he said one night, he says, if you're not grateful, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. And uh, I'll never forget those words and the way he looked when he said, and the strength and the conviction that he said them with. We're on retreat one time. We did a healing ceremony. And it was people that were there still talk about it to this day. It had to have been over 10, 12 years ago. And uh, at the end of it, we were all kind of in a pile together putting hands on him and another guy that had a brain tumor. And uh, it just, it was electric. It was a powerful thing. Afterwards, I'm sitting in this metal folding chair, which is kind of a symbol of God to me. <laughs> and uh, I'm sitting in this metal folding chair, and he's across the room. And he sees me, and he's all overcome with emotion. And he comes walking over to me, and he sat down in my lap and put his arms around me and whispered in my ear. He says, Bill, I'm so frightened. I'm so scared. And there's nothing to say. You just hold them. You don't leave them. We don't shoot our wounded here. We save souls. We save lives. And sometimes we lose some of them. And it doesn't seem fair. But I don't get it. I don't understand all this. And it's not up to me to have to understand it. But I don't have these experiences without you. I can't learn to be intimate without you. 
You are an integral part of this thing. And the mechanism God has given us is to sponsor each other in a formal, official way. If you're sponsoring people, you're always in the steps. You're always in the fourth step. You're always in the fifth step. You're always in the ninth step. Always. It never stops. You read the thing incessantly. There's always something new in it. You know what makes it new when people say, you know, I, they must have snuck that in the book? You know what makes it new? The person you're reading it with. They hear it when you don't. They hear it. And they stop. And then you think, well, I never noticed that before. Because they noticed it. Because they need to hear it. I'm convinced that when I go speak at meetings, you hear what you need to hear. It doesn't matter what I say. This guy Billy used to speak a lot, and he said this woman came up to him one time and said, you know, I came here tonight and I was going to kill myself, and I thought, well, I'll just go to one more meeting. And after what you said about suicide, it changed my whole mind. I think you saved my life. And Billy says, I didn't say anything about suicide. He went, he went and he got the tape and he went home and he played it. He goes, suicide was never part of my story. I'm a homicide guy, you know. It's like, you know? And Billy, Billy would say, he says, and I'm convinced. After he says, it doesn't matter what I say. You hear what you need to hear. And when I'm alone in the room with you, my friend Karis Gantner, are we doing, how are we doing? Oh. My friend Chris Gantner had a seven-year-old son. The kid got leukemia. Took him two years to die. And uh, this was after the owl thing, and I'm not sure about Patrick. But my friend called me up, and he said, this is what's going on. I'm in the children's hospital with him. Will you come? And I went there, and I walked in that room, and it scared the hell out of me. My children were about this kid's age. The little boy's name was Aaron. And it was like looking at my own kids. And I walked out of the hospital that night, and I called my sponsor, and I said, I can't do this. I just can't do it. I can't go in there again. It's just its too much. That's enough. There's limitations, God damn it. You know, you can't ask me. I'm just this lunk head that's, you know, got sober and then this crap's going on. This ain't right, you know. And he says, I'll come, I'll go with you. And he went with me. He didn't even know this guy. And he went in there with me. One time I was in that room with that kid and I started having chest pains. And they put me in the cardiac care unit <laughs> upstairs. And my friend Chris comes up there and he looks at me and he goes, this is the most pathetic ploy for the center of attention I've ever seen in my life. My kid's down there dying and you're faking like you got a heart attack. You know? I mean, only in AA. I think our job was, was to take him out of that hospital and let him yell at us so he wouldn't yell at the doctors. The kid's mother, they would medicate her, but he wouldn't take the medication. He's a sober guy, so he had to do it raw. He had to do it raw. We stood around that little boy's bed and prayed for his death so that he would stop suffering. It was awful, and it didn't have a happy ending. I know now what I would do if that happened to one of my children. 
We all say we wouldn't do those and we couldn't do those things. Yes, we can. I changed my father's diapers. My mother died in the living room of my house and I changed her diapers. Because I watched Al do that with his mother. I'd seen the face of death. So when it was my parents' turn, I was ready. And it all came home. It all came home. How do I know that something I do over here is going to affect who I am way over here? I can't make that connection. I can't see it beforehand. I just have to go wherever I'm invited, whenever the phone rings. Whenever... That's how God teaches us intimacy. We get close to each other, and then we can bring that home, hopefully, to our families, to our wives and husbands and children. But you and I are practicing on each other. That's what the fellowship is about. I need to sponsor you. And the time comes where I take off the sponsor robes. I quit playing even that role. And I just invite you into my home and into my heart. Because I know you're the teacher. You're the mechanism. You're the vehicle that God uses to show me how to love fearlessly, to love recklessly, and not be afraid. Thank you. Uh, once again, uh, during the question and answer period, if you have a question, please raise your hand and make your questions brief and to the point. And I'll turn it back over to Bill. Go ahead. <laughs> Yes, ma'am. What do you do when your family thinks you're a whack job? <laughs> when you start, when you bring newcomers to your house and your family doesn't care for it? That's a really good question, actually. Um, I'll tell another little story. Uh, I got sober, and for about the first Six months or so, my wife, uh, you know, nobody believes we're actually going to stay sober. You know, we we want we get 30 days, we want a trophy. You know, and uh, and uh, and it wasn't long before, pretty soon, I was bringing people home, and I met this new group of people, and I was away from home a lot, and I'm going to these meetings, and the family's looking at me weird, and. And I just had to tell them, you know, I'm, I'm going to get sober. I just need to do this. And everybody was pleased that I wasn't drinking anymore. They couldn't, it was hard to argue with. But all the emotions, all the, all the background noise that had been suppressed or I couldn't hear for a long time was starting to surface. People were not happy with my behavior over the last 20 plus years. And when I started sponsoring guys, I would meet them away from home. So I was gone more than when I was drinking almost. And I heard a speaker at a meeting say, when I sponsor guys, I bring them in my home, or do I have something to hide? And I went, whoa. And the kids were small and growing up, so I started bringing them home. And we'd sit out in the garage, and there's a whole bunch of guys that have gotten sober sitting inside that garage with me while the kids were kicking the soccer ball up against the door. When my daughter graduated from college, the Al guy 
from the ICU thing came and went to the, came to the graduation. It was like watching his kid graduate, you know. And it was rough at first, but I'll relate a story. My daughter, she's 26 now. A couple of years ago, when she is in um, college at Long Beach State, she was given an assignment to to write a story about three people that she admired the most. And she had to write this story about them, and then part of the assignment was to call each one of those people and tell them how she felt about them. And when she was on the phone telling me this, I didn't get it right away. They can't watch us do the work we do and not admire us. It's impossible. It's impossible not to admire us. We're wonderful people. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful. We take these losers and try to save them. Mostly we're not successful, but a lot of times we are. We are the mechanism that God uses. And if somebody's looking at you saying, why are you doing this? Ask them to record themselves asking that question and see if they can't figure out the goddamn answer. You know, it's what we're meant to do. And if they don't like it, tough. I mean, that's been my attitude. How could you, how could you not let me do this? Look what I'm doing. This is, this is good work. People say, uh, <clears throat> Well, you know, I, I have my family to take care of. What better way to take care of your family than to involve them in this? What better way? What an example. What better example could you show your children or the people around you other than this kind of work? There is none. There's no better example. You know, I grew up in a house where people's lives were being saved, and I didn't recognize it. And my kids have grown up in a house where people's lives were being saved, and they recognized it. They, they knew. They knew what, what's going on. And uh, So I think it's hard if they think you're a whack job. Well, there's a lot of truth to that probably, huh? <laughs> I, I, I was telling this to somebody earlier, but um, last Christmas... Christmas before last, we had this Christmas Eve party at our house for my wife's family mostly, but my kids come. <clears throat> and afterwards, we're all standing around the Christmas tree, my, my, kid, my daughter and my son, my, my daughter and my son and myself, and we're all three talking. And we all three came to the conclusion that I had grown up quite a bit over the years. <laughs> and, uh, and I looked at my daughter and I said, you really think so? She goes, Dad, you've come a long way, man. It's been a long time. It's been a, it's, you know, she's serious. She says, it's been a long time since you've had a tantrum. You know? And I said, well, you just aren't around me as much as you used to be, you know. But I'm, I'm on an equal level with them, I think. You know, I've grown up. Yes, sir. I'm Curtis. I'm an alcoholic. Curtis. What's your experience with um, what do you do about that? You never fire them, ever. What's the question? Oh. What do you do about a loser that's six months sober <laughs> and he's not calling you and he's not doing the right stuff? You know, it's like live minicam report. There's an alcoholic behaving badly. <laughs> <laughs> What do you do with that loser? And uh, 
I mean, most of them are like that, you know, one level or another. And uh, you never, ever fire them. You know, you never hired them. Don't fire them, you know. It's not an employment gig. Um, I absolutely heartily disagree with teaching them a lesson by shoving them away. I think those days are over. Nobody deserves to be treated that way, ever. That doesn't mean that I have to be nice to them. <laughs> and uh, I will reach a point with a guy where I will have this conversation with him. I'll look at him and I'll say, you don't want what I have. Oh, yes, I do. No, you don't, because you don't do what I do. You don't clearly don't want what I have. You know? And uh, and I don't fire them, but I'll let them know that I, I don't agree with their behavior, don't waste my time kind of a thing, you know. And usually those ones that don't call, they don't waste much of your time. They just aren't around. You know, have you ever had anybody, has anybody here had the experience of, you know, this guy around AA, he asks you to sponsor him and then you never see him again? <laughs> that is odd, isn't it? I mean, it's like they get close to you. They really like you. They've come to your house and they say, you know, I really need a sponsor. I really like, and then they run like a scalded dog, you know, because the relationship changed. Well, that's what they're working through. My job is to keep the door open. You know, so, I, you know, <clears throat> there's this illusion that I'm a hard-ass kind of sponsor. I'm not. I am not a hard-ass sponsor. I just am not. I mean, if you really want to get into the steps with me, I'll, I'll take you in a long way. We'll do some pretty intense stuff. But if you don't want to go there, it's, it's your decision. It's not mine. But you, I'm easy to get a hold of. I'm easy to access. Uh, you can find me really easy. I always answer the phone. I always do. You can call me anytime, night or day. I'm easy to get a hold you know. So I'm accessible. It's up to you to take advantage of that. There are times I will be proactive. And when I was newer in the program, I would chase you around. Those days are kind of over. And it's not because I think that there's anything wrong with that. It's just my life has changed. And to be quite honest with you, I kind of forget who you are. You know, I'm I'm old, you know. <laughs> and I forget, you know, oh, yeah, you're, oh, right, you know. I mean, it's like that. It isn't because I'm consciously not doing it. I just, you have to kind of come and get it now. But you never fire them. You can shake their tree a little bit. My friend Clayton Brown says the thing that you do, this is, this is, something, this is not what I do, but I think this is really cool. <clears throat> He calls them up when he knows they're not at home and leaves a message on their answering machine or on their voicemail. And he says, why don't you get a set of balls and call me? <laughs> and Clayton's the thing about that is that he says, no man can ignore that message. <laughs> yes, sir. I just taken on four new spots in the last week. So uh, you just got him off in the doctor's opinion. How long should you spend on the first step with a new guy? How long should it take before you move on? As I've gotten older in sobriety and as I have looked at how other groups and entities work the steps, different from how I did it, I put a lot more emphasis on the first step now than I ever did before. Because I think I get it now. 
only took me 20 years, you know. But I think I get it. And uh, so what I do is I have to be careful with a new guy that I don't lay more on him than he's capable of understanding. The reason in the, in the U.S. school systems that we teach English for 12 years, from first grade all the way through senior, the reason we do that is for the first five or six years, kids don't get it. They haven't developed enough to really grasp language at that depth. So we waste that first five or six years, then we try to make it up on the tail end. And I think that uh, working the steps with new people is along the same lines. Sometimes we emphasize too much. And I'm a pretty sharp guy, and, and what I understand now is a long way from what I understood when I was 37 years old and I was six months sober. My job as a sponsor and working the steps with you is to get you up through a fifth step as quick as I can. Because if I do that, you have a better chance of staying here if you can take the pressure off. And if I can dump you into the ninth step soon after that, we might be around a long time so that when you're three, four, five years sober, we'll finally go back through the steps and really do it. Um, the fourth step inventory is important enough to do poorly. Get it done. Don't jack around with it. You start dredging that stuff up, and if you don't process and get to the other side of it, you'll medicate it. So get it done. Um, I kept all my inventories. The one I did at 10 years sober was a killer inventory. I mean, I had some, I had some distance, and I could really look at it, and I did a really comprehensive inventory that really helped me a lot. So to answer your question specifically, I'll read the doctor's opinion with him. I'll explain uh, the concept of the allergy. I'll ask them to find themselves in the four or five different kinds of alcoholics it describes in there. Circle it, put a star next to it, you're in the book. You know, that kind of thing. I'll ask them, have you ever drank a day or so prior to something really good that was going to come down for you and screwed the whole thing up? And they nod and they go, well, tell me about it. You know, so I, so that I can kind of get an idea if they're really alcoholic or not. Because, you know, some people just have, don't have that experience. You know, so hopefully they can grasp that. I think the allergy thing, there's that paragraph where he defines, you know, only entire abstinence, we lose touch with all things human, and I'll spend a little time on that. But then I move right on. I just, I don't waste a lot of time with it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.